Travelers often report that their experience when visiting a foreign country doesn't match the public mainstream description of the area. I mean, it's often a country that we hear about in various ways, maybe through our official government communications, social media, even the media, that is portrayed in one way, yet when the traveler goes through, stays a while, they find something completely different. On this episode, we get a glimpse into Iran through the eyes of two motorcycle travelers. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. And here's another one I use, Cycle Pump. Best Ref Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA. It comes with a lifetime warranty. They're also the distributor for Google Tech filters. Drop by their website, CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear makes all kinds of strap-related luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their strapping system. You've got to have a look at the different things they've got. It's the stuff that I use. It's incredibly tough, durable. It will last you for many, many years. GreenChiliADV.com is the website. GreenChiliADV.com Hey, Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002, and they've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online that you can order, and they will ship it directly to your door. They have an e-rider newsletter that you can sign up for free, and they have an incredible online fiche for looking up your parts when you're ready to order. MAXBMW.com. That's MAXBMW.com. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The Moto Breeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. Motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. Motobreeze.com. We often hear about Iran uh, through different sources, and I know a lot of times people want to point to the media right away, but I would say it's everywhere. It's folklore, it's how we're brought up, it's what's circulated on social media, and it's certainly the media. And Iran's often painted as a, as a country that is, um, well, it's, it's got a different culture um, than at least to Westerners. And because of these different cultures and different rules and different laws, it can be daunting to consider traveling there, even scary. But in the motorcycle adventure industry, we often hear from travelers who go to places like Iran and come out with a completely different experience than what you would think they should have because of everything you've learned about a country so far through all these different sources. And I've said before on this show that I think that it's often it's the governments that create the problem. You know, the governments that go head to head with one another and the people are just people. You know, they're just trying to survive and have lives um, much like we are, at least, you know, basically, anyway, speaking. CBC, which is a Canadian broadcasting system, it's Canada's NPR. CBC recently uh, aired on their program called The Current, an episode where they interviewed a Switzerland-based Canadian-Egyptian filmmaker. Uh, the guy's name is Tarek Munib. And what he did is he went around and offered a free trip to Egypt for Americans who were fearful of Muslims. 
And to do this, he went to um, some Trump rallies to look for participants, I guess, thinking that he could find someone there that would fit the profile that he was after. He did find someone, and then he recruited the rest through media and online appeals. And eventually, he got the seven people that he was after and gave them this, this sort of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to face their prejudice and the views that they had sort of gained through life and through everything else, all the other exposure they have. They went and they met Egyptian families. Now, their experiences were recorded and is presented in a film called Free Trip to Egypt, which is um, airing now at, uh, at theaters. And what it did was it, it got them to see people for what they were rather than from a government's perspective. And on this episode, we're going to talk with Silky and Yan, who found a human connection in Iran. They spent six months there traveling around. And they, they're not reporting any of the, the downside that we've heard in other places. Their experience was so profound to them that they reached out to us at Adventure Rider Radio here, and they wanted to share their story with you. Neumann. We are on the road with our motorbikes since February 2018 and we spent six months in Iran. Yes, my name is Jan and we will continue through the um, Star countries uh, this year and hopefully crossing also China on a seven-week trip until uh, Mongolia in October. Jan and Silke, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you. The last time we talked, you were, what, headed to Nordcap or or you just come back from Nordcap? Mm -hmm. It was our honeymoon in winter. Yes. Right. The winter honeymoon. And and obviously it kind of worked because here we are this much later and you guys are still together talking um, very close together too to do this interview. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, due to the equipment, we are really almost cuddling here. So <laughs> luckily nobody can see it. Now you're sitting in Armenia with a, a broken down bike. Um, you're waiting for parts for your DR350. Silky, can you just give us a rundown on that? Yeah, we did a timing chain change in Tehran in our garage and it seems that the mechanic did something wrong. So the piston broke uh, in Iran, then we flew in another piston and new walls fixed that, went uh, to Turkmenistan or to the border and 100, meet, uh, 100 kilometers before we reached the border, the engine broke again because the piston broke and then we decided to truck the bike back to Armenia because uh, our visas were running out, the Canada Passage was running out, and because of the sanctions, it's not very easy to get parts into Iran. So we are back in Armenia. We are not in Uzbekistan now, where we plan to be, but um, it seems the engine will arrive this week. Well, why did you end up doing a timing, Jane? it's normal after 50,000 kilometers. Um, it says in the handbook, you need to check the timing chain and it was yeah, ready wow. to change. Uh, and, and is the DR350 sort of known for that, do you know? No, no, no one knows what happens. Until now, we don't know. We took the engine apart two times and no one can tell, tell us what's the reason. So that's why I decided to get a new engine flown in from Germany. Wow, the new engine's got to be pricey to get flown in. Mm. Yeah. We have a German automobile club and luckily um, 
they are taking over the invoice. So yeah, not of the engine, just of the shipping costs. The shipping, yes, not the en the engine, oh. but the shipping. So that's so that's like a like a towing program. No, it's the spare it's, part shipping program. We are in the insurance. We are kind of gold member with our automobile club for the last uh, probably twenty five years. And um, you've got um, more or less free shipment for all kind of spare parts within um, Europe. And um, they defined Armenia to be in Europe. <laughs> Europe, so we are on the edge <laughs> and lucky. Wow, that's really good. I've never heard of that with an automobile program. You certainly don't get that here in North America that I know of. Any sort of free shipment. I mean, they'll do other things like cover you for a hotel room or something like that if you break down, uh, you know, some minor reimbursements. But um, shipping an engine, wow, that's that's pretty good service. We hope it works. Until now, we didn't get the money. <laughs> and not the engine, but uh, we will see this week. And uh, hopefully at the end of the week, the engine is in and running again. And uh, We can continue. Yes, and got the money from our automobile club. Mm. <laughs> we will see. Yeah, well, you would think there should be some warranty with the mechanic uh, <laughs> that worked on your bike. Uh, in Tehran, <laughs> we tried to, to contact him and he said it's not his fault and it never happened and it can't be like this. So. But mm. it clearly happened after we spent a day in his garage. So, yeah, there's no doubt. Mm. Oh, and what would you do? Get an Iranian attorney and sue him? <laughs> <laughs> so well, you, you have to. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys just spent, you spent six months in Iran. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, was that planned? I mean, it must have been, right? You, you, you had a, an idea for this? Not really. Um, we wanted to spend at least three months in Iran. We've been before in Iran um, 10 and uh, 15 years more or less ago. 23 years ago. Oh, 23 years ago for Zilki. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we wanted to cross um, in three months Iran, going over to Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and um, wanted to cross afterwards through Saudi Arabia, Iraq, back into Iran, into the Stan countries. But um, due to this um, journalist in Turkey who lost his life due to the Saudis, um, we couldn't get any tourist visa or any other business visa for Saudi Arabia anymore. Um, so we skipped that and left the bike in Iran and only flew back over to um, Dubai to renew our uh, visas. Oh, well, that's, that's what I was going to ask about is how, how you did with a visa. So, so that's what you did. You just had to leave the country for a period of time and then you could apply again and it happened that fast? Yep. Yes. It was really fast. You always get uh, 30 days and then you can extend it up to three months. After the three months, you have to leave the country, apply for a new visa. Then you get another 30 days. And when you're back in the country, you can extend that visa up to three months again. So that's how we got six months in total. Yes. Now, now, before you went into Iran, uh, what was your idea of traveling there? Was it going to be, you know, you're transiting from one spot to the next, it sounds like it was, on your way through the rest of your trip? And then how did that change when you decided or realized that you're not, you're not, you're not able to take the route that you wanted to? Um, I was actually with my motorbike um, crossing from um, Dubai to um, Turkey in 2008, but only for 10 days because I had a four weeks vacation to go back home to Germany. And there I was more or less rushing through all the tourist sites and we decided that we're taking a totally um, calm and we will see where we are ending up and trying to get um, very the nice uh, countrysides uh, into our So we journey. did the major sites, but this was just the beginning and then we found out that the country has so much more to offer. So we went to the mountains and to the loot desert and to, well, regions no tourists go, like Kurdistan, Lodistan and all those unexplored regions. And we found so many beautiful things and we encountered so many people. 
that invited us and they didn't expect tourists. So it was really special. And the country is so big and beautiful. So after six months, there's so many things we didn't see and do. So we really have to go back. You you got in no problem though. I mean, you, you, at least for the second time, you go out and you just renewed your visa. So if it's not easy to get in, why are they not inundated with tourists? They had um, not the problem. They were last year um, becoming quite openly for tourists. Um, you got visa on arrival suddenly with um, flying in a Tehran or any other airport, and it was quite easy with an e visa. Um, to get a registration number where you can pick up your passport uh, at the embassy. You didn't get um, a stamp in the passport? Yeah, you don't get your passport stamped anymore. And suddenly, uh, it was last year in July, August, there was an information um, coming over the automobile club from Germany, Belgium, I think Portugal and France, that suddenly they didn't want to allow any bikes anymore into the country with over 250 cc. At that time, we were also here in Armenia and uh, were quite excited about going to Iran back. And then we didn't know what really happened. So we um, we sneaked through from Armenia and um, they started this year in April to close down the, the borders for our big bikes. We were lucky to be already in the country when they closed the borders for bigger bikes. And yeah. Yeah, so far we figured out that there are two kinds of groups um, in Iran that are more the conservatives and then the liberal ones. Um, the conservatives, of course, or the um, yes, the Muslims and um, more or less the police, and they didn't want to have the big bikes anymore. And uh, the tourist ministry didn't know about it. The foreign ministry in Tehran didn't know about it. Um, so at the moment, there are um, highly discussions behind the scenes um, about opening the borders again. And I think it was a few days ago, the first bikes from Turkmenistan ended again with a 20 days visa for the bikes. So something's happening. But what's the again. problem with the larger bike, though? Is that is it hard, too hard to chase down or something? Um, it comes down to the um, revolution 40 years ago where they had, um, or they were very anxious about um, possible assassinations. And um, then they're running away or driving away with big bikes because they couldn't chase them. So that was the reason why they ran down um, the motorbikes down to 200 or 250 cc which is uh, 40 years later, absolute obsolete. If you see um, how much power you can have in a 250 <laughs> race bike, mm, that's so true. with almost 40 um, horsepower and uh, a high speed of 160 um, kilometers per hour. And uh, quite light and handleable and no police cars chasing, uh, chasing in a big city like Tehran any of these small bikes, but they stick to it. But the, yeah. and the thing is too, I mean, there's other countries that have this sort of restriction, but it's not so much on CC, it's on having a rider on the back because that's really the problem is the, the you've got a, a, a driver or a rider up front and then you've got the pillion on the back with a gun or something. That's where the assassinations happen. They have their opinion and well, <laughs> 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 it or not, we don't. We are trying to change. We started like uh, two months ago in May, an email campaign among travelers who went to Iran or who wants to go to Iran um, to write to the tourism ministry and to the Iranian automobile club to change that law. It seems we were successful, but there is still big well, discussions behind the scenes, so we have to wait. Well, when you're traveling around in Iran, you, you said you, you went around and you saw the, the sites to begin with, and then you went off and saw the, the places that people aren't seeing so much or aren't part of the, the tourist route, I guess you could say. What are you doing for accommodations and, and how do you plan your routes? Are you just going and showing up places or is this all arranged in advance? Um, yeah, Iran is not connected to any international booking sites. So there's no booking.com, there's no TripAdvisor, nothing. 
So um, at the beginning, it was a little bit hard because we always look for places where we can put the motorbikes inside so they are not seen and locked up. And uh, then we met our angel, it's an Iranian girl working in the tourism industry, and we told her what our budget was, what our interests are. And then we just told her, like, in two days, we're going to this or that region. And she found us the perfect accommodation. So we stayed in an organic farm. We stayed in ecologies. We stayed in a ranger in the cloud forest. So she made many things possible that we wouldn't have found by ourselves. Mm. But it was Yeah, it was only the last three, four weeks until um, we found um, Hamidi. Before it was really kind of old-fashioned traveling. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you found what? Um, the, the girl. The oh. girl, Hamidi, it's, um, she's called. And she helped us for the last four weeks uh, with these nice accommodations. Before it was more like old-fashioned traveling with a map. And uh, even though you have some GPS, but you don't have any real data in it. So you come to a town and um, yeah, you, you ask around. Where's a hotel? You go into the hotel. You negotiate a little bit about the price. You and see some, if they have safe parking. Yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes not. But then if it's not working... Of course, they know somebody who knows somebody who has a family and the cousin of the family um, owns a hostel and then um, suddenly uh, somewhere in the middle of a family. <laughs> What's it like as far as, you mentioned that there's, you know, the, your conservative type or the two different types you're finding, more conservative, more con more liberal um, type of people. When you're going into towns and you're stopping people and asking them, where is a hotel, et cetera, et cetera, are you meeting a mix of those people or are yeah. you meeting more of one? It depends on the region. Like in Kurdistan, we met very conservative people and we were also invited by them and that was really backwards. <laughs> and in big towns, you meet people as modern as everywhere else in the world. Yeah, the funniest thing is here that um, you need um, a, a tunnel to get any kind of VPN. Um, a VPN tunnel to get access to any kind of um Yeah, information sites, um, the Western or Eastern side, um, they're really controlling the internet. And on the other side, they have their satellite dishes on their roof. And uh, you get any kind of uh, satellite program from the United States down to South America, to China, to um, Russia, you get all kind of channel with all kind of information. So it's kind of funny that they're restricting the internet so much. They're so, watching BBC, CNN, everything we are watching and there's yes. no restrictions for the people well, because they all have VPN and satellite on their homes. I, I've heard this before about Iran, but but I've heard that also they sometimes do a blitz and they'll come and they'll rip down people's satellites and, and take their stuff away. Um, and then people just go ahead and put them back up again. Yep. And sometimes the VPN doesn't work. So we always had two running because sometimes the one didn't work. Sometimes the other one didn't work. Sometimes only the, both together. So it was a little bit tricky, but normally it works. But when you're using a VPN as a foreigner, you're breaking the law. Oh, didn't we? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you were concerned about that. You didn't get the feeling that, you know, Big Brother was going to all of a sudden uh, reach up and grab your shoulder as you're on your computer. Everyone uses a VPN, everyone, because they also want to use WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook and all that. And uh, The funniest thing is, I don't know if it's a communication minister um, in Iran who is excessively using Twitter, like Trump is doing it. Unfortunately, um, Twitter is normally banned in Iran. So um, what he's Twittering, <laughs> um, normally is really allowed to read in Iran. Uh, so um, everybody's using it somehow. <laughs> So, so he's actually doing effective tweets in his own country where no one's supposed to see the tweets. Yep. Yes. <laughs> That is bizarre. Modern communication. 
So, so what's <laughs> the is. attitude then? Is there sort of like a, a civil disobedience or, or just an acceptance of, you know, when the man comes around, you, you duck your head down and pretend you're, you're playing normal. And then as soon as they walk away, you go back to what you were doing. Well, there's always a way around everything they say. So if there's a problem, they find a solution. That, that's yeah, strange because that's cultural, isn't it? Because I've heard this before when I've interviewed people who've been to Iran, is that, that I've heard that exact same saying. So obviously that's a cultural thing. That, that's something that has been handed down through generations. I think it's more a development through, um, through the last 40 years. Whatever they wanted to change and if they want to um, get participation participation at the political process, it was all denied. So at one part, um, their behaviors, um, yeah, like... Um, the social um, way they are supposed to, uh, officially. And then there's um, the other social system, which everybody's using. So it's always two yeah, minds in one person. They know how to get around everything. Like yes. alcohol is not allowed, dancing and singing for women is not allowed. But if you go to the desert every Thursday night, there's big parties going on. There's a lot of alcohol. There's a lot of dancing and singing, singing women. So everyone knows where to go to do what they want. It's funny if you're in the in the desert and you're invited, they're putting up one of these disco balls, like from John Travolta's time, into the middle of the desert, and they're um, lightening it up, and they have loud music there, and they're listening to techno and house music, and um, you can't even imagine what's going on out in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it sounds very normal, like the rest of the world. Yeah. yeah, but in the desert, no one can see them. So, but, they but I mean, it. they have to know what's going on. I mean, you, you, I mean, you know, it's like it's. I don't know if you guys grew up like this, but I mean, I certainly did. Where when when you're younger and, and somebody's stupid enough to announce they're having a party, and of course, there's no social media back then. The word got out, and you had a massive uh, crowd that would show up. It was a big mistake to announce it in advance. So, if you announce <laughs> something like that that's illegal, the government has to catch wind. Well, sometimes we met a DJ, and he said that sometimes he has to pay some well bribes. Yeah, or fines, whatever, however you might call it. But then he's allowed more or less to do his job. Yeah, there's a very big underground um, house community in Tehran. And they used to have um, in old houses or um, half-built houses, um, the big huge parties. parties. And sometimes the police are showing up, but then um, it's a kids of money. They have money like hell in, in Tehran, the upper class. So they spend some money and continue partying. So it's the upper class that mainly that's, that's breaking the laws then? Yes. I think, well, also the lower classes are breaking the law, but not so excessive. Yeah, and not so obvious because they don't have so much money. So but any, do you get the feeling uh, that things are, are corrupt as far as the government goes? You know, when you're having to deal with anything because you're talking about paying bribes, even DJ paying bribes. Do you guys feel that as well as travelers? No. no. For travelers, no. It's the most safest country um, I've traveled so far. And Whenever any, we had to pay something, we knew what it was for. So, if, if and, it's safe, why do you worry about your bikes? Why do you why do you look for places where you can take your bikes inside? Well, you never know. We had one experience last year. We paid for an expensive hotel in Russia to be re, uh, registered with the authorities, and they had uh, video survived parking, and um, we left everything on the bikes. And the next morning. Uh, how many liters? Like 15 liters of Jan's <laughs> motorbike were missing. They were stolen mm. on a video so wide, so close, so-called closed uh, parking. So that was the moment we decided we never, ever leave the bikes again alone outside when we were staying somewhere. Mm. It happened so, in front of a gas station. <laughs> oh, wow. 
<laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of ironic, is it? Well, maybe maybe they were confused. To be fair, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, might might happen. If you're too drunk at uh, Russia, then you miss the gas station and take some motorbike instead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you just do it because that's that's your rule. You're not gonna you're not gonna let it slide this time. You, you do, you're not gonna take the chance of being that one person that comes out and finds your bike gone. So th- that makes sense. Yes. Well, it's not even the bike when they steal like my rain jacket or rain pants. This is all we have that's on the bike. So if they steal it, it's so hard to get it. It's not a lot of value, but it's a lot of hassle to get it. So mm. better keep yeah. the bikes inside. The chances that somebody steals from you in Iran is very, very low because if they get caught, um, probably their hand is gone. The first one. You never steal um, anything from travelers because traveling is a holy thing in Iran because uh, once in their lifetime they have to go to um, Saudi Arabia, to the big black stone. And um, for their, therefore you um, support travelers as much as you can because you're also somehow somewhere on the road um, yeah, visiting the holy shrines in Iran or then the holy shrines in Iraq or in, in Saudi Arabia. So um, traveling is a very holy thing in Iran and needs to be supported by anyone. That and, is uh, interesting. So that's a cultural thing that that um, really compels them to go out and, and do something. I mean, if they see a traveler, you'd, you'd certainly want to help them because you'd hope that would come back to you. So that's got to be different for you from other places you've traveled. In Iran, it's a little bit too much sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so there was one day we really went hiding in the hotel room because there were too many invitations. And whenever we left the hotel, we got other invitations or people wanting to invite us or show us around or pay for some tea or ice cream. But uh, generally, I would say the people are everywhere helpful outside of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, When we left um, Iran to renew our visa. We left our motorbikes on a small island in the Gulf on Kashem. So after we came back with a new visa, we left the island on a ferry boat and it was um, a few days after their New Year um, holidays. holidays. So everybody was on the run back from the beaches or to Tehran. And you always need three days driving so um, on the ferry boat, we met, of course, a lot of um, locals and they supported us with fresh fruits and water. We drove our 350 kilometers. We found a nice hotel. Next day, we went back on the highway. First gas station. Same people again. Same people again. You know, we met on the ferry. You remember? I say, of course. It must be one with a white car. All, All cars, cars are, are white. <laughs> <laughs> so they came with cookies. They came with whatever you can imagine because we are on the motorbikes and it must be so exhausting, this long riding. So we need to drink and we need to eat. And it happens until Tehran. For three days, we were on the road and we met all the time the, the same people on the same stops. It was very funny. And they're buying you this stuff just out of their own money and, and giving it to you? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. That's just incredible. I mean, it. Uh, so, are, and, and while you were traveling around, do you see any other travelers, any foreign travelers? Not so many. Mm. We met one motorbike traveler in April and another one in June. Yes, but it was mainly due to the um, not allowing 250 cc and more into the country because um, this information spreads around um, 
the region and Europe. So anybody who wanted to start their trip to Iran was not quite sure if, if he's arriving at the border, if he still gets in or not. So a lot of people changed their plans of not going to Iran because of this uncertainty and uh, stayed somewhere in the Caucasus region or in Turkey. And most people just go to the major sites and that's what we have done last year. So this year we have been somewhere else. So, yeah, not many people around where we went. Have you run into any any sort of difficulties there, in particular with the more conservative type of people? Are there people that feel that you shouldn't be traveling around their country or, or do you get any sort of, uh, just run into any sort of problems? No. No. Never. No. They're the friendliest people you can imagine. Whenever you yeah. have a problem, at least you have 20 people who think they might have a solution. <laughs> <laughs> and they come up and they try and help you out. Yes. Oh, yes, they start calling um, first their best friends who know English very well. So they translate on the phone and then they evaluate the problem. And then they're discussing um, in their small group standing there, what's the best solution? And suddenly is coming somebody with one of these uh, blue typical Iranian pickups. And yeah. you can't even imagine how, how fast they're um, lifting up an entire bike on the back of a pickup. And suddenly you're on the road. And, somewhere. and you guys are totally comfortable with this. You know, from the, from what you're seeing, this is all good. It is. It is. It is all good. Yeah. If it's not good. Why should it, why should it be bad? Oh, no. Yeah. But, if you, you know, you're in a foreign <laughs> country, so there's always the opportunity for somebody to try and take advantage of you. But obviously, you, you have the feeling you're, you're totally comfortable. You understand that, that everything that's going on here is people trying to help, not, not, uh, not trying to pull the wool over on you. I felt much more comfortable in Iran than in, in Germany. Mm. Wow. Do you, do, are you camping or only hoteling it? Both. Both. The problem <clears throat> is when we arrived in Iran, winter was coming and the nights were really cold below zero. So there were last year, maybe only a week or so in the tent. Yeah. How do you find a place to camp? I assume there's no campgrounds. Mm. About beautiful landscape. And Iran is big and you go out somewhere outside the next town and you find a really nice spot somewhere on a hill or somewhere in a small valley where you can pitch your tent. Or just behind the dune and, and the desert. So. And, yes. and everyone's fine with this? Has anyone stumbled across you and said, hey, you can't, you, you're not supposed to camp here? Or? Oh, no. Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> they are master of picnicking. Like everywhere they have picnic and um, well, they come and invite you and you don't have to bring your own food because they bring it to you. So when you're discovered... It's all for good. We, <laughs> it just sounds, it, it does sound so unusual. You guys know this, right? Because, you know, there's usually you've got to sort of have a certain amount of guard up where, where when somebody shows up, you sort of think, okay, what's going on here? Is this, is this is going to be a positive or, or a neutral or negative experience sort of thing? But it sounds it's like you always, you, always um, you follow your feeling. You um, see the countryside and you think, oh, this is a nice, um, a nice site. It's, it's good for camping. Then you look around and uh, make sure that nobody sees you, you know, Iranian. Because if somebody's seeing you camping, they're probably not coming to you and talk to you. But next morning they will bring you breakfast. Oh yeah, that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so in the middle of nowhere, somebody's coming in the morning and say, here, listen, there's a breakfast. Fresh pastry from the bakery, just for you. Enjoy breakfast. <laughs> wow, that's that's really nice. So, so what are you seeing there? You just mentioned that you you know beautiful valleys and desert and things. What, what sort of landscape? What, what sort of um, sites have you seen that sort of really taken you back? We started um, coming from the north and went to the northwest or to Tabriz and then to Kurdistan, and it is a very um, 
high mountain range um, dividing um, Iraq and Iran. And you're really riding on the ridges of this mountain area. And you look down into the Iraqi, um, yes, smaller countryside. And it's breathtaking. And uh, there's nobody. It's uh, mentioned on and the... And tarmac is good. And you can really, really, yeah. really enjoy a motorbike. Yes. <laughs> the embassies, uh, the foreign, um, tell you that it's not uh, safe to go there. <laughs> um, so close to the Iraqi border, but nothing's happening there. Sometimes you see some smugglers, but um, they're taking care of their own business. And um, it's a beautiful, astonishing landscape. And then we went to Lut Desert, which is the hottest desert of the world with the highest dunes. And that was that was one of the most impress impressive landscapes we've seen there. And because they have dunes 400 meters high. And salt lakes and like gravel plains and deep canyons and well rocky formations in the sand. So yeah. oh, that was a real highlight we really ex yeah. experienced. So we've there. been to many, many deserts and we were not sure if we should go to Lut Desert because you need a permit and to get a permit you need a guide and the guide needs to be with two cars and three people, so it's getting more and more expensive. But uh, we talked to many people that have been to many deserts and they say loot is beyond your imagination. Even if you have seen many dunes and many deserts, you can't imagine what you're going to see there. And they were all right. And they also recommended to leave the bike somewhere stored safely yeah. because our old DRs are, have far too less power to be able at least to ride a little bit in the dunes. Uh, a friend of us was there last October or November, I can't really recall and he was running with a um, brand new 690 uh, KTM and he says um, to less power. power he couldn't go up this high dunes and we say okay <laughs> we are not destroying our old DRs but uh, mm -hmm. we are taking a highly tuned uh, Toyota uh, Land Cruiser with uh, almost 400 horsepowers and uh, this thing was um, still having some trouble um, flying up the dunes so is it because the dunes are so high and steep yes. or the sand is so soft or a combination of everything the dunes are 400 meters high Whoa. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's going up um, on the one side. You can drive up um, kind of small steps. So you're reaching slowly the top of the dunes. And then you're directly on top of the dune and you look down into a hoo. And it takes you almost 40 seconds to drive down with a car straight. Wow. That is <laughs> and, really cool. That, that, did you try it at all with the bikes? No. no, no, we left the bikes outside. It just didn't even didn't even make it go because it does sound like something would be fun to play in, and they're they're good with you going anywhere. I mean, or at least them that took you in the Land Cruiser, like you know, sometimes with these areas you have sensitive areas where you can't just ride anywhere or drive anywhere. They tested us before, so we started with small dunes, and he was test riding in the dunes because it's um, worse than a normal roller coaster, and some people. The, the stomach doesn't work that well. <laughs> so uh, you give it a try to test if um, we are capable of um, yeah, going with him with the car, driving um, kind of a really um, aggressive style. Otherwise, you can't get up on the dunes. Well, we didn't know. So the first day was really boring for yes. us. And we were disappointed. Like, oh, we could have done this with the bikes. This is so simple. Little dunes. And what is he doing? And we paid so much money. But this was just a test drive. So the next day we went into the big dunes and then we knew why he did that. Yes. Mm. In total, we spent almost yeah, four days. and a half days, five days there. And um, to take the bike with us, we also would have had um, a fuel problem with supplying because you're taking with the old bike seven, eight, nine liters in descent and would be quite difficult to take uh, sufficient fuel with us. So what were, what were you seeing in the desert that was so incredible? The dunes. 
the dunes? The 400 meter high dunes. Describe them. It's like a mountain range, but made out of sand. And when you see it, you can't believe it's just sand because it's a little bit gray from some metal in the sand. So it really looks like rock formations, but it's all sand. And when you drive on top of it and you look down into the big craters and the valleys of the dunes, it's it's really like in the high mountains, but it's all sand. It's very difficult to describe. It is only a wall of sand you're approaching. And then suddenly um, it goes up. And the entire region of the Lut Desert, they were always capable for the last 10 years to cross the entire dune sections of the Lut from east to west. It's the only way you are able to cross the entire dunes. West to east is impossible because it's always a steep side. Because of prevailing winds. Yes. Yes. Mm, From west to east, it's... Yes. We went the 40 40 seconds down and there was the west side. So going up there, it's impossible. And they started 10 years ago to have the cars, the Toyota Land Cruisers. And um, with chip tuning and to really have enough power to be able to drive through that um, dune field. It sounds strange, but I couldn't imagine that before, before we went there. But now that we've been there, it's it's hard to describe to someone else how that big dunes look like because it's so special. No Did- comparison to Morocco or to Tunisia or in Namibia where you are all very high dunes, but they're... Um, tiny <laughs> <laughs> did, did you see any wildlife while you were there um, no we saw kind of um, footprints or so from yeah, animals but, we didn't see them. but we didn't see real wildlife but uh, it was on the other hand um, kind of a green desert there were a lot of small kind of grass yeah, desert grass growing there so it was not only sand as you're going through the dunes in these low spots, you, you find some grass and I assume water then. There is some, there's a salt <clears throat> lake in the middle of Lut Desert and it's always filled with water, yes. even in summer, because there's a little salt river flowing in the desert. So it's, it looks kind of weird when you see that lake in the middle of nothing, but there is water, yes. Wow, it sounds uh, it sounds like quite the, the interesting thing to visit. I was going to ask about cost because you mentioned about uh, about money there a couple of times there. What was it like to co- uh, cost wise to travel in Iran? <laughs> we spend an average of two hundred eighty euros per person and month, including new tires and some four star hotels and petrol, everything. Is that because everybody's paying for everything for you, or is everything really cheap? No. This no. is because of the sanctions. Ex- yeah, the sanctions. The exchange rate mm. is really bad for the people good for us but yeah for them it's not so good we're going to take a quick break to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today but stick around we've got more coming up after the break the best cold weather socks i've ever worn are pearly's possum socks they're the official sock of adventure rider radio my choice because they blindsided me so hard. I mean, when Pearlies contacted me to try out their socks, I wasn't the least bit excited until I received them and put them on. These socks are made of a blend of merino wool and possum fur. And I tell you, this blend and their design make up the best cold weather sock I've ever tried for motorcycling and even more. Now, I've been an outdoorsman my entire life. I started backpacking and camping overnight when I was like 12 years old. And I've spent many years as a wilderness guide. I have never, ever 
had a pair of socks that have that have impressed me like Pearly's possum socks. And I'm still wearing them even in the heat of an Ontario summer because we're in Ontario right now, which is like 30 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit because they feel so good in my riding boots. They seem to keep my feet at an even temperature. Anyway, grab a pair. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. As we've learned on Rider Skills episodes in the past we've done here at Adventure Rider Radio, when you get into dirt situation and you end up standing on the bike, you shouldn't be gripping your handlebars, which means that your connection between you and the bike is your foot pegs. And likely your stock foot pegs are a wimpy stamp metal design, some even with rubber inserts. And when you hit the dirt, that connection between your foot and the peg, that's when it really gets tested. And having a larger stable platform that sheds mud and grips your sole, I'm talking the sole of your shoe, but I mean sole of your boot, but it could be your sole too. That's when you really need a quality foot peg like IMS Products makes. Um, Their foot pegs are made in the USA of super tough materials. Racers have used these pegs and do use these pegs. These foot pegs come with a lifetime warranty. And I can tell you from my experience that they will change your ride. They will add to your control and allow you to really use the skills that you already have and allow you to develop more through the confidence that you'll get and the control that you will achieve with a, a proper foot peg, what I would call a proper foot peg. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you you speak with them, you're emailing, phoning, doing whatever, please mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. I was going to ask you about the sanctions with with Iran being in the news recently and all of these things going on. Did, did that affect you at all while you're traveling around other than, you know, the, the cost of the, of the, no. the dollar? Not at all. The Iranians really do not care. It's all in the Western media and friends wrote us messages and got really concerned. Like in the last month, we mostly get messages like it's time to leave the country and how will you survive there if a war breaks out? And in, in the country itself, no one talks about it. It's not a problem. So when we are saying goodbye to people and said, oh, we wish to come back and uh, we don't know why, uh, when and uh, if it's possible. So Western people would think, about the war and um, think if there is no war, then you can come back. But Iranians were thinking otherwise, like, oh, if you get a visa or if your motorbikes are not allowed, things like this. So Iranians never think about all the sanctions and a possible war. Do you suppose they're, they're, they're just doing that because they're talking with you as a foreigner? I mean, no. is, is something you don't talk to foreigners about? No, it just, I would call it Western propaganda, what we hear in the media and in Iran, it's really not a topic. Well, I mean, that you're talking with the average person because, I mean, certainly with governments, governments are going head to head. You can see these things are going on and there's certain, um, you know, problems generated because of this. And, and it's the same with everything in all countries. Governments are not a representation or true representation of the average person that you're going to meet on the street. But the normal average um, person on the street, um, they don't mind so much about the political stuff over there. If the doors are closing, they're really... Um, uh, speaking openly to you and the moment uh, the most important thing for all the younger people is that there's no perspective in iran they are going now i don't know the third or the fourth time through sanctions and there's an entire generation who grew up under the mullahs they are very well educated they have fantastic universities 
and they can't get any jobs. So um, the main thing they want to do is to leave the country, to have a, a perspective in their life, to be able to earn a decent amount of money and uh, which also keeps the value <laughs> from your income and um, to grow a family. Uh, but they're not going to do it in Iran and they are really um, having a kind of a brain drain on what's happening at the moment because they're all fed up with the sanctions and they're not even blaming um, Mr. Trump for the sanctions. They're blaming their own government for having not um, going for the right strategy over the last 10 or 15 years to um, develop the country economically. That's the main issue, the main issue um, you're talking about with the people, how to get out of the country to have a nice life. So you you mentioned that um that, there were, that some of them have a lot of money and then then there's a whole generation there uh, that are looking for jobs is there is there a, a serious uh, class separation there from from people who are really rich and and what are the rich making their money from I don't know I, don't I know. think it's, it's more on Tehran there there are so many rich people driving around in cars you wouldn't see in on a German road It's uh, a kind of a family business if the family is well and um, you've got your own company and they had the good times before they started with the sanctions. There were a lot of um, yeah, importing and exporting going on and they're earning a lot of money. And what they're doing all the time is um, they're having all the foreign bank accounts. They have them in Turkey or in Everywhere. Dubai. And- you, you're able to buy in, in Iran with a normal uh, MasterCard or Visa card. They make it all possible. You can um, transfer money via PayPal into Iran. If you're a for- as a foreigner run out of money, you only have to ask one Iranian and he knows somebody who knows somebody who has some weird account somewhere around the globe, you get money. So all the rich people um, with companies um, and well-educated ones, they have all the foreign bank accounts. And now... With the exchange rate, it's, it costs They're them rich. nothing. <laughs> They're just rich. They're accumulating money like hell. I assume there's a lot of uh, uh, historical things to see there? Yes. It's, yes. it's such a cultural rich country like Persepolis and Isfahan. It's, it's really, when you go to see the sites, you feel like in a book of Thousand and One Nights. They have a history of over a thousand years. And uh, Persepolis, for example, um, they had some certain kind of rules that um, pregnant um, women are not allowed to work after, I think it was a six months or something like that. So they had a kind of social welfare. It was 800 years ago um, to make sure that um, everything is going well with a pregnancy. And um, if I remember 800 years ago, what we have done in Europe, um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were still hunting some bees and we're in the forest mm-hmm. where they have um, highly cultural um yeah, society. Also, what you can see, um, it's all desert and they have water. And yeah, that's very interesting. How they, they bring water into desert towns. A very special system of um, canopies. Canards. It, canards. They're very tiny, small tunnels. You can crawl from the, uh, in them. And they're ending up in the mountains. And at the end, they are kind of um, Y-shaped. And so they... The water, which is coming into the or from the rain, going into the um, the soil of the the mountains, is going to some point onto a very um, stony um, surface, and then they have all these small tunnels, and um, these tunnels collecting all the water into the um, the cities, but over kilometers, it's so five, six, seven, ten kilometers from all kind of um, mountains, and then they have a specific um, system to share the water among all the inhabitants of the village. 
So this is and the, that those tunnels are very old. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's 800, 900 um, years old, and they're still keeping these tunnels uh, in very good shape because this is um, the water reservoir. They're we still collecting in a in a mountain village, and this is the way they get their water until now. It's a very ancient system, but it still works because it keeps the houses cool and all this. It's it's a very complex system, and they still use it. And the water, like they have to wait for rain, and so when it rains, it mm. runs down, and then they they hold the water in cisterns. The, there's snow in the mountains that melts during the summer, and then they collect the groundwater in those channels, and they have like reservoirs or yeah, big underground cisterns. You only have to. You must have a look on the on the map of Iran, the topographic one. It's an average of one thousand five hundred meters high. And then you still have the mountain ridges of three and a half thousand meters. So you cross three or four times really high mountain passes before you are coming close to the Gulf. And it's approximately 150 kilometers away from the Gulf where you really start descending um, fast to go on the um, zero level. Otherwise, it's all mountainous and they have everywhere um, still um, Tehran. You look onto um, White Peaks. They have ski resorts up there and... Three and a half thousand meters high. So, what what uh, tips would you have for for someone else considering to go to Iran? What travel tips would you have? Stay as long as you can. Yeah. Don't go there and only have Rush a through. a three weeks or four weeks vacation. Then you're going to the main cities like Shiraz, Isfahan, Yazd. You see a lot of nice old um, buildings, buildings, mosques, uh, which is very impressive and very nice. But uh, this is only half of the country. Yes. Oh, or less. The real life is um, somewhere else. It's somewhere not else. tourist attractions. Silky, Jan, thank you very much for letting us know what your, your trip is like and good luck with the rest of it. Good luck with your engine. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> That was Silky and Jan Neumann. We recorded that interview a few weeks back. They have a website chronicling their travels called travellove.org, and a link to that website and some photos from them are in the show notes uh, for this episode. Now, I have to say that this story doesn't mean that Iran is necessarily a safe place to visit nor a dangerous place to visit. It's just two people's experience. But we've had other people on this show that have traveled to Iran and have had similar, if not the same, experience that they have had. Now, I have said on this show before that just because someone else traverses an area and has no problems and meets great people, that that doesn't mean that there aren't real dangers there. You have to assess those for yourself. For instance, someone may walk through a minefield, and I've said this before, someone may may make it through a minefield totally unharmed, but a fool would assume that that minefield is now safe, obviously. Governments can be difficult and unfair. Police and other officials may be corrupt and cause you problems. But stories like the one we just heard certainly shed some light on real-world experience with the everyday people of certain countries, some of those countries that you've been convinced to fear or maybe even hate. Now, I suggest that you judge a country by its people, not its government, yet you can't ignore the government's effect on visiting. Assess the risks and consider the experience from those who have already been there and traveled the way you want to travel. 
Now you'll probably want to go to our website and look at the show notes for this episode because we have links in there to the film that I mentioned, to the CBC segment I mentioned, also a Lonely Planet article that talks about traveling to Iran. It has some points that are sort of contrary to what we just heard as well. And then also link to um, Jan and Silky's websites, all there at our website. If you have trouble finding this episode, just go to the search tab and um, search for Iran or, or maybe Jan and Silky, something like that, and uh, it will pull it up for you. To finish up, I want to give a shout out to Max BMW Motorcycles at maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com, and Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. These companies help bring Adventure Rider Radio to you every week, and they all offer great products. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer and to you for listening to the show. Thank you very much for that. Hey, if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a review from you. It's something we should have been asking right from the start, but we haven't been until lately. So we would love it if you go out, find us anywhere you find podcasts, wherever you're listening to us, and give us a, of course, a five-star review. That's what we're after, right? Uh, on Facebook as well, we'd love to get your review on Facebook. If you've got an idea for a show, uh, Elizabeth, our producer, makes it easy for you to submit it. Just go to our website and click on pitch a story found on the uh, About Us or under the About Us link and send us your idea. We would love to get it. If you know of somebody who's riding around that you're interested in hearing their story, send us a note. We would love to get it. Anyway, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Oh, wait, one more thing I've got to ask before we go. We've built this on a model of advertising and listener support. And like I said in the, in the last episode, if you heard that, there's only a fraction of a fraction of the of listeners like you actually support the show. We need your support. We need your support to make the show grow, to make it better, and to keep us going. So drop by our website and click on the support button. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And we really need it. So anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next week. This is Tim Burke, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>